There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. It's a podcast about making work better. Hello, 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 hello. Thank you for joining. I'm Bruce Daisley. First thing I always say is that if you are here because you're interested in improving your workplace culture in terms of making work better, then one of the best things that you could do is you could sign up for the newsletter and you'll get that at eatsleepworkrepeat.com. There's also a link to it in the show notes below. And I had a lot of people had uh, several hundred new signups this week and a lot of people said, wow, I never knew this existed. This is exactly the sort of thing that we're debating at work at the moment. So this week's newsletter was the 10 stages of making the decisions of what the return to the office looks like for your firm. I think you'll find that useful and stimulating. And I I think there's a lot of considerations along the way that people have said, thank you for calling out this part or this part. So these, uh, there's a good guide there. And like I say, you'll find that at eatsleepworkrepeat.com or on the link below. Today's episode is an interview with legendary psychologist and anthropologist Robin Dunbar. So Robin Dunbar is famous for discovering this intriguing fact, which is has, has become known as Dunbar's number. Dunbar's number is the idea that human beings are only able to trust 150 other humans. Now, you might think that's too small, and that's what Robin did. Robin Dunbar himself thought that was way too small. And he sat about, set about trying to unpick it, trying to understand the origins of this number. He'll explain to you how he got there. So he started off amazing non-linear career, started off as a philosopher, had to do another unit to do his degree. So he added, I think, psychology, he'll, he'll tell us. Then he ended up spending years studying apes and other primates and antelopes watching their behaviour. And there was something that really struck him about how apes and monkeys spent hours just grooming each other, hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And it, it didn't seem to make sense that the longer-haired apes were spending longer grooming. So it wasn't related to the length of the, or the complexity of their hair, but they spent hours trying to forge trusting relationships with each other. Anyway, he went on and extrapolated that for humans. It's fantastic, really compelling story in the telling. But the other thing about Robin is that his work's gone on beyond that. So I found myself sort of geekily looking into a lot of academic papers, looking into a lot of the things that people are trying to work out and trying to discover for us. And one of the things that you discover 
is that uh, he's done a lot of papers about how we might try to connect with other people or what a good connection with other people does for us. And um, so he's gone on and done a lot of those things. I tried to contact him and get him on the podcast a couple of years ago. Anyway, he's got a brand new book out. It's called Friends by Robin Dunbar. And that really goes into a lot of this. It goes into firstly that idea that we can only trust 150 other people. And then it goes into exploring the importance of human contact with other human beings. And some of that is touch. Some of that is laughter. Some of that is that we seem to activate these endorphins in the brain from hearing stories from each other. Fantastic, compelling. I think you're going to love this discussion. Also, Robin gives very clear advice, if it was up to him, about what the return to work would look like. So I think you're going to love this discussion from Dunbar's number through to the importance of human contact. If any of you have got a degree of touch hunger right now or you're you're craving being around other people, then Robin Dunbar's evidence might be the the compelling case for the defence of trying to get together with other human beings. Uh, I think you're going to love this discussion. Um, there's a slight scratchy noise on his headphones that he's, that he's wearing. It's the world we're living. I, I look forward to a podcast with no, no audio problems at all. But here it is. Here's my discussion with Robin Dunbar. Robin, thank you so much for, for joining me today. I'm thrilled to talk to you, actually, because along the way, You've written so many of my favourite academic papers. I know that's a, I, and that sounds like a weird thing. It's sort of like being a favourite songwriter, but I've, I've been so grateful. And, in, and even though I tried for many years to get a hold of you, I ended up chatting to people like Emma Cohen, who'd done some of your, who'd worked on the rowing paper with you. And even though I couldn't chat to you, I chatted to your collaborators by proxy. So, uh, so I'm delighted to, to speak to you in person today. Very good. A pleasure in that case. We're going to go into your work and, and your findings. I guess, you know, the, the thing to, to kick us off really is I love the fact that your career has been so non-linear. And it seems like some of the learnings that you've been able to pass on to us have been because you kind of swapped from studying apes to, to studying humans. How would you describe your career? Uh, I think um, with great difficulty, actually. Um, uh, it sort of zigzagged serendipitously as a consequence of all sorts of um, accidents of history. So it goes back to the fact that I grew up in East Africa, uh, where I spent a lot of time uh, sitting in the middle of animals, in effect, and a lot of time sitting in the middle of m- many, many disparate cultures, from not just from, from Africa, but also from India and from Europe. So I probably had far more exposure, deep exposure, sitting around the hearth, as they say to more cultures than, than I've had hot dinners, literally. So uh, I feel very at home in that kind of environment, but at the same time, I feel very at home in uh, the environment of, of wild animals. And although I wasn't interested in either, particularly as an academic subject for a long time, I, looking back on it, both of those experiences clearly played a very important role. Because actually, when I went to university, I went to do philosophy and wasn't at all interested in science. Oh, wow. Sciences were for the dull people, the you know, exciting people did humanities subjects, and I was going to do the most difficult of all, namely philosophy. I, I soon learned the wisdom of my ways and was accidentally introduced to psychology, 
by the fact that I, I went to Oxford and you couldn't do psychology on it, uh, sorry, philosophy on its own there. You had to do it something else. And I actually chose psychology as the least bad option and I knew nothing about it as a discipline because you couldn't do psychology at A-level in those days. So it's a shot in the dark. But it introduced me to the sciences, to mathematics even through statistics, and uh, introduced me to a whole new fields, including the study of animal behavior, which would never have happened if I'd gone off and done philosophy. With, because everywhere else that I applied to was for pure philosophy. And I say to this day, if I'd gone anywhere else, I would have ended up as a rather mediocre second-hand car salesman in Blackpool, probably. Sorry, Blackpool, but... <laughs> Okay, that's fascinating because you sort of describe this scene of spending, and it goes in a blink in in terms of your writing, but of spending 25 years studying, I think you say apes, monkeys, goats, and antelopes in in sort of variously in in Africa and Scotland. And you spend hours and hours and hours watching these things. And and you, you talk about the fact that apes and monkeys actually they seem to spend an inordinate amount of time just attending to each other and grooming each other. Was that something that developed, that curiosity developed because it was so self-evident to you, or was it just the amount of time you spent staring at them that it made it sink in? No, I, I think it is just blatantly obvious if you spend a lot of time watching animals in general, uh, but monkeys and apes in particular, that monkeys and apes are particularly social. So while I was studying all these monkeys, I was also actually casting an eye to the side, watching antelope and uh, other wildlife that, that, that you're sitting among, as it were, on the African plains, because obviously the place is full of all sorts of interesting animal and bird species, uh, not to mention snakes <laughs> the like, that you have to watch out for. But you know, the contrast to monkeys and apes becomes very obvious if you're sort of looking simultaneously at these less social species like antelope at the same time as you're looking at monkeys. They really are intensely social. And, of course, that's been the secret of their evolutionary success. That's the family we're embedded in, and so that's why we're so intensely social. It's just that we do everything that monkeys and apes do on a much grander scale, much more challenging to work on because the human social world is so large and complex, really, even by comparison with the social world of monkeys and apes. So you found yourself there, and I think you say that this is the epiphany, I think this is the epiphany that came from funding was no longer there to sit staring at antelopes and monkeys and baboons, and all of a sudden you found yourself in the rather more mundane sphere of sitting in an office Tell it better than me how you went from thinking how many monkeys seem to be grooming each other and how much time they're spending into thinking, hang on just a minute, humans must be in that line of correlation. This is probably an unfashionable thing to say for the last 20 odd years, but I'll say it anyway. But this is Margaret Thatcher's great contribution to science. It's because I just happened to hit the point of getting what my father would have called a proper job, namely a a, a sort of prospectively permanent job, lecturing students at university rather than sort of working from one three-year grant to another, doing research. At the point at which the great Thatcher squeeze hit everything, but particularly the universities, so there was very little funding to do fieldwork. Fieldwork is cheap science by comparison with most physics and chemistry and biochemistry and engineering where you need 
expensive kit, uh, never mind human bodies, as it were, to do the research. Fieldwork is very cheap to do. It's just you know, a salary and a Land Rover, basically, is all you need. But there wasn't even the money for that. So I was a bit challenged sitting in London, uh, as I was then. I'd just gone down to London to this job, uh, wondering what on earth I could do as my research side in the absence of any funding to go and do field work in Africa or anywhere like that. And it just sort of occurred to me, I, well, I can do the same kinds of things on humans in the street, literally outside the door and nearby parks, as I would have done on monkeys or antelope in the wild, as it were. Observational studies collecting data. And so that's how it kind of began, and increasingly then began to take over. So although I never stopped doing research on monkeys and antelope and goats in particular uh, over the years, nonetheless, the human stuff began to become more and more important, if you like. And, and eventually, particularly it kicked off, I guess, when I discovered this relationship between the size of monkeys' social groups and the size of their brains, which I'd used to predict what the size of human group sizes ought to be, which gave rise to Dunbar's number of 150 as the natural group size for a human. So once that sort of got into the consciousness of the research community initially, um, it began to acquire a life of its own and, and really took off. As I began to think, well, I wonder how it all works and uh, why is it limited to 150 exactly? Just explain how you came to 150 then. So, so you were plotting the size of which part of the monkey's brain and so, so just g- give us a bit of the, the story of how you came to that number. So it, it just so happened that um, the year before, the suggestion had been made that uh, the reason monkeys and apes have such big brains is because they live in very complex social systems, very complex societies, and therefore needed a big computer to handle all the relationships involved. And so it occurred to me that it might be interesting while I was at it to test that hypothesis. So I had shown that time spent grooming correlated with group size. Well, if the social brain is right, Group size should correlate with the size of the brain, particularly the size of the neocortex, which is the kind of thinking part of the brain. And it's the bit of the brain that's evolved out of all proportion in the course of primate evolution. It's huge. It represents about 80% of our total brain volume. Uh, and there it was. There's this very nice correlation between social group size and neocortex size in primates. And then, as one does, sitting idly, wondering what what this all meant, it occurred to me, well, actually, we could make a prediction here about what's the natural size of groups for humans, simply by plugging in their neocortex size into the equation for the relationship between brain size and group size, and seeing what it told us. What it told us was that the natural size of groups for humans is about 150. You know, I was a bit surprised by that. I was sitting in London, a rather large city. Too big or too small? Well, very small. <laughs> Far too small. Well, given that we can live in, you know, well, however many people are in London these days, 10 million or probably still or something of that order, um, although obviously it's now dwarfed by even bigger cities, but, you know, we can live in these big towns and cities. So you might think we'd have a bigger natural group size, and the answer seemed to be no. So... The question was, well, is there something odd going on here about humans? Are humans behaving completely differently to every, all other monkeys and apes? Or is it that you know, we really 
of very small society-based species, relatively speaking, compared to the kinds of size of cities we actually live in. Obviously, they're 150 is big by primate standards because the biggest group size you get in primates is about 50. That's the average size for a species. But, uh, you know, our, our prediction here is that our groups are three times the size of that. Well, so far, so good, but only 150, that seems very small. So I um, thought the best place to look was really in the size of hunter-gatherer societies because we've spent 99.9% of our evolutionary history in hunter-gatherer-type societies, which are very dispersed and small-scale. I set about combing the library in London, the university library there, to see what data I could track down. And the answer turned out to be very close to 150. It was the average size of hunter-gatherer communities. And that number has just kept cropping up all over the place ever since. We found it in the most obscure places, including the size of uh, German uh, residential campsites of all places, LinkedIn, (laughs) (laughs) Facebook. Christmas card lists. Christmas card lists, the size of military units, the size of villages in the Doomsday Book, size of email networks, um, size of co-author networks in the sciences. Let's go into precisely what it means, because inevitably the pushback is going to be that people will say, well, look, I've got... 1,001 Facebook friends, or I've got all these, I've got 10,000 LinkedIn connections. So precisely what is the provenance of 150? Okay, so what it really refers to is the individuals you have meaningful relationships with at any one time. So it is obviously a very dynamic environment. People are falling out of friendships or romantic relationships, I suppose, if it comes to that. Uh, and, you know, those people disappear from the solar system and other people come in to replace them. But so at any one time, you know, you have about 150. That's the average. It varies between about 100 and 250. It seems to be fairly stable. And it seems to identify the people that you have a relationship that has history with. So you go back some way, you know where they fit into your social world. They know where uh, you fit into their social world. It's the sort of person I once described as if you bumped into them in at 3 a.m. in Hong Kong airport departure lounge, you wouldn't feel embarrassed about going up to them and saying, haven't seen you for ages, how are you doing? And, and of course, there are more people out beyond that. And it, it turns out that, in fact, the 150 is simply one of a series of layers of essentially emotional closeness. Uh, and so beyond the 150 is another layer that runs out to about 500, which is acquaintances. A lot of the people we work with would be in that zone. We might well go and have a beer with them after work or you know, have a bit of fun with them on an away weekend. But we probably wouldn't invite them to our big party at home. And as I sometimes say, you know, the 150 is your bar mitzvahs, weddings and funerals group you know they're the ones who are going to turn up to those big once in a lifetime events and not many of those people from uh, in the acquaintanceship circle will come to that it's not to say you can't have real friends at work that's perfectly okay if you like it's just that there are a lot of people there that you know relatively casually and then out beyond that there's other layers which are essentially you know faces you can recognize so this is why you can have a thousand or even two thousand friends on facebook as many people do the question they simply have to ask is how many of you these do you actually know personally and if you go and knock on their door as one 
imaginative young uh, Swedish TV host <laughs> did try, what's the response you'll get? And you'll find you'll get the res- response he got from a large number of his uh, Facebook friends, which was, you know, who the hell are you and what are you bothering me for? <laughs> It's interesting because my take on this was if I bumped into someone in the supermarket, would I, or if I saw someone at a a distance in the supermarket, would I deliberately slow down or change direction rather than talk to them? So you you seem to be saying something similar. So we've heard definitely over the last 12 months talk of weak ties and this notion that innovation comes from weak ties. So weak ties would exist outside of that core 150. It may be into that 500. Is that what you're saying? Well, I think the problem is nobody quite knows where the weak ties lie. The classic uh, explanation for weak ties, which simply divided your social world into strong ties and weak ties, was that the weak ties were the ones where you got information from or new ideas or knowledge about, you know, where the cheap supermarket deals are at the moment or, you know, where the new stand-up comic that you might be interested in is, is performing. Our data actually suggests that that begins at about 50. The distinction is probably between those within your first 50 closest relationships and those beyond. And so it bridges the outer layer of your 150, your natural friendship group, and then beyond that in, into the acquaintances layer beyond. I think the, the, the issue is much more in the end. I think this is probably oversimplifying something that's probably much more interesting, this, this weak tie, strong tie view, that, that the reality is that while there are advantages to working with maybe having friends who uh, think the same way as you do, which is a very, very strong factor on the quality of friendships within the 50 circle in particular. This is the uh, known as the homophily effect. You, you Birds of a feather flock together in a very, very strong sense. The advantage of that is that you don't have to do a lot of explaining because the other people in, in your little cluster are so immersed in your ways of thinking, they know exactly what you're trying to get at. The moment you open your mouth, you don't kind of have to explain the joke to them is the point. So it's very efficient in terms of working processes. But on the other hand, Clearly, you're all thinking the same, so you're not getting any new ideas coming in or any left-field ideas, perhaps. And so that's why it's a good idea in creative environments, uh, and many work environments, of course, are creative environments in some form or another, then it's often advantageous to have people who are coming in with a different perspective because they may spot something you haven't spotted. So it depends what your task of demands are, really. If, If you want some guys to think very quickly through a problem and come up with a solution, you may well be better off having people who think alike. If you want to solve a a difficult problem for which there's no obvious solution, then probably you want people who don't think alike. And also, so you've mentioned there the the, the weak ties, but inside this 150, there's actually something far more probably important to us, which is the idea that these circles of intimacy, that we might have five really close friends in the world or often less than that and then there's a group of 15 people so can you talk us through these sort of ever decreasing or ever increasing circles okay of what friendship actually looks like in the various different states so your 150 uh, really is the outer layer on a series of layers of friendship intimacy 
So you might think of them as um, like the ripples on the pond where you throw a stone in. So if you think of yourself as the stone, at the centre you've got these expanding ripples running out from you. Each The inner ripples are much higher, but of course are more compact than the uh, ripples further out, which will be lower in amplitude, um, but cover a wider area. And that's rather the way our social world, our friendship networks look like. We have this very close inner layer of, well, actually, the innermost layer is one and a half. Then there's a layer at about five, a layer at 15, a layer at 50, and a layer at 150. And beyond that, 500, 1500, and 5000s, those are the ones we know about. What's interesting about those is that they scale. Well, I should say those layers are what, what is known technically as hierarchically inclusive. So each layer is includes the layers that, that are inside it. So the 15 layer includes the, the five uh, within it. So they have a scaling ratio of, of three. So each layer is three times the size of the one inside it, for which we have no real satisfactory explanation, except that it has to do with really with how we allocate our time. But how we allocate our time also directly affects the emotional quality of that particular relationship. And bearing in mind, these, these, this 150 consists of a mix of family, extended family and friends. It's not just friends. Uh, it's your social world as well. But the inner layer at five is really important for us. Uh, it typically consists of about two family members and two uh, friends, so two close family members, two close friends, and an odd one from either side to make up the, the extra, as it were. They are what I call the shoulders to cry on friends because they will be the only ones who will really be prepared to drop everything when your world collapses in total um, chaos and, and, you know, you not only need a shoulder to cry on, but, you know, somebody to shepherd you through to the disaster and point you in the direction of the way out, as it were, and perhaps help you with a loan, financial loan, or, you know, come and help you with the roof that's fallen in your house, actually come and help you put it back up. All these kinds of real expensive, costly forms of assistance that that's the layer you really depend on. Now, they also have a dramatic effect on our health and well-being, our psychological health and well-being and our physical health and well-being. The best predictor of how happy you are with your life, how ill you're going to be in the next few years, uh, your ability to recover from surgery, major surgery, even how long you're going to live. The best predictor is the number and quality of close friendships you have. And I stress the quality here because it's not just a matter of packing them in. Trying to have 15 shoulders to cry on will actually have a counterproductive effect. You'll be worse off than if you only had four. Um, it's the quality of the relationship, and the quality of the relationships depends on how much time you invest in them. So 40% of your total social time and social effort, like your social capital, is devoted to just these five people, and another 20% to the extra 10 people in the next layer out that make up the 15. So those two inner layers of amounting to 15 people in all account for 60% of your total social effort, which is extraordinary. I was really struck with, to, to escalate to someone's best friend in the world, that, that one friend that people have, it takes a lot of effort. You know, I think you said it was like 50 hours. You can't suddenly become someone's best friend. And I guess that's why, to some extent, when we've found people who appear to be trying to be our best friend, it can feel deeply inauthentic because that's an earned 
status. The problem, of course, goes back to uh, the fact that forming relationships of any kind, whether it be family relationships or, or friendship, is a two-way process. Uh, you know, you have to make room for the other person. The other person has to make room for you. And of course, one of you is likely already to have existing friends that they have commitments and obligations to. So you basically have got to persuade them that you are more interesting or better than the ones they've currently got. Persuade them to give somebody up and allocate the time they were giving to that person to you. So, you know, there's, there's, there's that kind of... Uh, if you like, negotiation issue right at the start of the thing. And then on top of that, in order to get somebody into a, the higher rungs of, of friendship, as it were, the higher uh, layers close into you requires the investment of a lot of time. Normally, we don't do it all at one go. But if one were to do it all at one go, the estimate is it actually takes the investment of something close to 200 hours over a three-month period to get somebody who's a complete stranger into your inner circle of five. That is a huge, huge hill to climb. Of course, you tend to do it over a longer period of time, and it sort of accumulates gradually as you test each other out and, and begin to realize that actually, yes, this is really an interesting person. Maybe I should invest more time in them. And then, of course, of course, you make the effort to try and meet up with them more often. It is a, a very exacting business friendship. And also the problem is, conversely, if you don't invest time in, in a friend to the requisite amount, because each of these layers that I mentioned is associated with a very specific frequency of interaction. If you drop below that frequency of interaction for that layer, that person will slip over the border into the layer below very, very quickly within something like three to six months. Yeah, absolutely. So so friends, are we, we need to service the friendship. We need to firstly earn our place there and then service it. This is not a question of putting your money into the... Uh, into the stock market and, and going off and having a, a drink by yourself and hoping the, the your investment will gradually earn dividends for you. So you've got to keep hammering away week in, week out. I want to come on to sort of the, the stuff that extends beyond like that 150 and the, the friendship circles. Because the, the, the way that I ended up finding so much of your work and reading so much of your work is something more about like the impact that human beings have on other human beings. And it can be when it's a degree of intimacy, when we're having a beer or eating a meal with other people seems to have like this remarkable impact. But specifically, I was intrigued with the rowers experiment. I was intrigued with the, the dancers experiment, the singers experiment. And I'll talk about what they are in a second, but especially in the context of the moment we're living through at this precise moment. So one of the things that I've always found confounding is that, you know, I'm a runner and my best ever running times were with, I ran with a colleague of mine. We were at in a sort of hotel stay somewhere and we went for a run and I ran 30 seconds per mile quicker than I've ever run before. And it was like, wow, what on earth has happened there? And why can't I force my body to do that again? I mean, I'm a sentient adult. I should be in charge of my senses. And you discovered something which is adjacent to that with rowers, which is like you put these rowers in on their own. And then you, the next week you put them on a virtual boat and their their endorphin levels were twice as high, which meant they were able to withstand more pain. They're able to, it, had they wanted to, I guess, they would have been able to train harder. They didn't, but they, they were able to train harder. Now, I'm trying to understand what is it about that physicality, that 
being in the presence of other people that transforms our situation and is there any substitute for it? So the moment we're in right now, you know, we're all fed up with Zoom calls. We're all fed up with being connected to computer screens. But we might feel a degree that we're Luddite unless we fully embrace it. It's like, well, this is the future. But there seems to be some evidence in your research that suggests that based on the software that we've currently got installed in us, there's something that's more fundamental than that. Yeah, I I mean, this goes back, just to put it in its context, to the fact that primates in general bond their friendships, create and, and by extension then bond their social groups through social grooming. And social grooming uh, through a, a, a unique neural system triggers the uh, endorphin centers in the brain. So this is, endorphins are part of the um, brain's pain management system. They're, they're chemically related to morphine. They give you the same kind of opiate high, but we don't get addicted to them because they're, you know, they're part and parcel of our machinery, as it were. And this gives you this sense of relaxation and trust and all's well with the world. And it also raises your pain thresholds quite dramatically. We've shown that that holds true for humans as well. When we increase our group sizes, we need to find other ways of triggering the endorphin system without involving touch because touch is, A, it has an intimacy to it, but also that intimacy restricts the number of people you can get around during the course of the day. And, and, And we need to just kind of groom with more people, if you like, in order to bond our bigger groups. So we lit on doing lots of physical things, laughter, singing, dancing, various other things that allow us to trigger the endorphin system with many people simultaneously. And because it's part of the pain control system, I guess, so jogging and rowing and all these other things that we do uh, also trigger the same system and have the same effect. Now, what's interesting about most of these social activities like dancing and singing and running and rowing is that there's a massive synchrony effect. If you do it in synchrony with somebody else, for some reason, which again, we don't really understand the mechanics of this, but it ramps up the endorphin output phenomenally. That's why you were running fast <laughs> when you were jogging with, yeah. with, with your mate, as it were. And this is why the rowers were able to uh, row fast. Because the thing about this is, this is eight-man rowing crews of the kind uh, that you see on the Thames for the boat race, uh, you know, the, whether you win or succeed depends entirely on how long the crew of eight can keep up synchronized rowing, because it, it really depends on synchrony. If somebody gets out of synchrony, you lose power massively. The longer you can keep the synchrony going, the more likely you are to win. And that, in turn, simply depends on how quickly you tire. So the synchrony of the activity, plus the physicality, is allowing them to row through the pain threshold. Uh, and keep it going for longer. And it's exactly the same with dancing and, and singing. You know, you, you come out of these, you can do these activities forever if you do them in synchrony with other people. And of course, this is the secret of things like sea shanties. You know, this is why they had sea shanties in, in the old days in sail, of sailing ships, because it allowed the poor downtrodden seamen to just keep hauling on the ropes long after they should have thrown themselves on the deck in total exhaustion, which, of course, would have just meant they would get a, a flogging from the, <laughs> the bosun, <laughs> probably. But, it, you know, singing together and singing in unison like that and pulling together on, on the ropes at, at the same time, all these things just 
ramp up the endorphin effect and, and, and raise your pain threshold and allow you to keep going under circumstances where normally you'd go, yep, I'm getting out of this, it's, it's too painful. And so if synchrony is like the super level, there seems to be more accessible ways for us to activate those endorphins. And the ways you, you describe, one of them includes uh, laughing. One of them includes storytelling. So if I'm thinking about applications for us being together, moments where an employer says, you know what, we're getting everyone back together for a meeting in September and lacing that with, you know, stories or, you know, narrative, lacing that with humour, it seems like that's one entry point into harnessing the power of what you've talked about, that humans have got this tribal underpinning, they've got this social core. That seems to be like an important device that firms might neglect if they're thinking about a Zoom-only future. Oh, I'm afraid they will be. I mean, I, I actually don't think any sensible firm would ever resort completely to an uh, online environment. And this is simply because um, at root, the world of work is a social world. You know, the, the, it's not all run by accountants. <laughs> the, the grafters who do the work actually have to get on with each other, basically, and they'll get on better with each other and uh, work harder for each other out of a sense of obligation help each other out and all these kind of things that are necessary to keep an organization running and uh, processes functioning if they know each other well. And, and that depends simply on meeting up day after day over the you know, water cooler, basically. So, you know, it's fine to have a partial online envi- work environment, but I think any, any company that goes completely online is throwing away uh, a lot of the effectiveness uh, and probably in the end efficiency with which the organization will work. It doesn't really matter what it is, you know, because everything from making nuts and bolts on the factory floor to designing software or administering some big organization is a human social process. It depends on people's relationships with each other because you end up in effect, having to do favours for each other uh, in order to get most jobs done. So people are much more willing to do favours if they know the person personally. And and explain to me why. So people will say this, and because I know you said there that you'd be mistaken, foolhardy, misguided to go fully digital. But let me tell you, there's lots of organisations, there's lots of people who might be contemplating it. Why would our psychology say that, laughing with someone on a Zoom call would be different to laughing with someone in a room. Is there an obvious explanation or is it just one of the mysteries of human psychology? We, we have glimmerings of explanations, I think is probably the best way of putting it. Uh, what is very clear from all the work that's been done both by us and other people is that people find face-to-face environments much more satisfactory, particularly in a social context. So, you know, they might prefer to sack somebody at arm's length by sending them a text. Uh, but, you know, the world of work doesn't consist of sacking people. It consists mostly of trying to get people to coordinate and cooperate together. And coordination and cooperation depends on feelings of obligation uh, to the other people, that you want to help them, that you're willing to help them. And that depends on what amounts to, you know, the, the quality of the friendship you have. Now, it doesn't need to say you have to be the best friend's in the universe with them. It's just that you have to feel that they are part of your little tribe, if you like, 
as much as anything. And that is built up by face-to-face interactions on a, on a regular basis. Quite why that works, I don't know. I mean, it may be that the digital environments, and this includes the telephone, you know, not just the sort of social media, these are not really the environments we evolved in. The environment we evolved in is face-to-face, and therefore our psychology is adapted to that face-to-face environment. There are some suggestions as to why that may be. One is that what seems to be important is a sense of co-presence. Now, you get a bit of that clearly on video-embedded social media like Zoom and Skype and, and so on. But still, you know, it's not quite the same as being able to stare into somebody's the whites of somebody's eyes across the barroom table and, you know, reach out and give them a pat on the shoulder. There's something about the immediacy of a face-to-face environment which becomes important. And one aspect of that is reflected in the fact that the flow of an interaction, the flow of a conversation somehow works better in a face-to-face environment. And flow affects your feelings of satisfaction with how the relationship went afterwards and you reflect back on it, as it were. So you come away thinking, you know, this person was was wonderful, whereas there's probably far too much time to sit back and go, did they really mean that? What were they trying to get at mm. if you're detached from them face-to-face? And that's partly because, you know, you can, uh, in the course of conversations with people, we're you know, forever reaching out and patting them on the arm or poking their shoulder to say, hang on a minute, I need to talk to you. Step over here so we can have a quiet chat in the corner. It's these kind of casual uh, elements of, uh, of touch that are very important in regulating our relationships with each other and are particularly important in kind of uh, more intimate relationships, as it were, closer friendships. I'm not talking about romantic relationships here, I'm just talking about friendships in, in general. Obviously, touch has become um, understandably a sensitive issue. But just when we look at the programming of our minds, so when we take, we set aside the the importance of, you know, being proper, certainly with regard to, say, our family, touching is an incredibly important device or touching your partner. Touch seems to be like this vital way to reaffirm our relationships when it's when it's welcomed. Uh, absolutely so. And I've always said that uh, if you really want to know how somebody feels about you, then how they touch you is worth a thousand words any time. Right? There's something very visceral about how people touch each other that conveys the sense of the relationship. Of course, herein lies the pitfall. How you touch somebody else depends on how good your social skills and whether you understand the nature of the relationship. You know, hence all the uh, occasions when people offer unwanted touches. Because at the end of the day, it's not just you touching somebody else, it's them being touched by you. And how they interpret that then is dependent on how they perceive the relationship between you. Which is why, if you look at the data for where people are, touch each other, and this we collected data all over Europe and from Japan as well, so from a completely different culture, you get pretty much the same picture that uh, the more intimate the relationship, whether it's family relationships or friendships, doesn't really matter, the more intimate the relationship, the more of the body surface is permissible to touch. Out beyond about the 50 layer, it, it's sort of down to sort of shoulders and arms, really, and that's about it, a pat on the shoulder or maybe a hug, as it were, and greeting. But beyond the 150 layer to strangers, 
It's very, very strictly regulated in all cultures. This is handshakes business only. And I think that's because effectively what you're saying is, listen, I'm um, you know, taking you on face value. I'm being generous in my view of you, but I'm going to only allow you to touch the furthest possible bit of my body, which is clearly my hand. And you're not getting any closer until you've established your provenance, as it were. So, you know, there is that sense. And I think that obviously that's where the boundaries get crossed because, you know, people would like to venture the suggestion that my relationship with you is a bit closer than you think it is when it's not perceived like that from the other side. And for the same reason, you know, this is why everybody in lifts, in a crowded lift, you know, stares at the, stops talking, (laughs) stops looking at everybody and looks at their feet because the last thing you want to do is to catch somebody's eye because that also is a kind of signal of, if you like, intimacy of relationship. I'm not talking about romantic intimacy here. I'm talking about just friendship. I, I'm willing to stare into your eyes. That's what friends do. <laughs> so, so you really don't want to give false false messages in, in lifts. You can't get out. <laughs> that holding someone's eye line was one of the things that I wondered whether it was... Because if we're thinking about the principal differences between video calling and real life, when, you know, we all know when you're in an audience for something and then the person who's speaking catches your eye, it's so penetrating. It's so, it's either, you know, if it's an artist you love, it's it's, uh, energizing. If it's your boss, it's intimidating. But holding, catching someone's eye, it's so deeply intimate. And yet that's the one thing, aside from touch, that we've been really divorced from this year. And that was one of the things that I wondered whether actually the absence of hold, someone holding your gaze is why this technology in its current form will never be quite as intimate as being in the room. That's certainly true, I think, because we're extremely good at determining whether somebody is looking directly at us or not, right? But that's in a context where the, the, the other person's face is occupying, because they're very close to you, is occupying a huge part of your visual field <laughs> right there face-to-face in front of you, whereas invariably on digital media, if somebody's too close to the camera, it kind of makes them look odd, if you like. You know, everybody advises you to sort of sit well back and probably I'm already too close and you're at about the right distance because you've, you've been doing it far more than me. Once somebody is pushed back that far, then the capacity to see exactly where they're staring becomes much, much more difficult. So the eyes smaller, you know, the difference between sort of you looking at directly into my eyes or just just past my ears here is much more difficult for me me to figure out. So I'm not sure that the digital world is ever going to solve that. Just as the same, it's not going to solve the problem really of the kind of intimacy of, of touch that you'll get in a normal conversation between people particularly of the you know social conversation in the pub for example but also there's another aspect of it that's very limiting and that is we are unable to hold more than four people in a conversation together that's to say a freewheeling dynamic conversation it simply can't be done if you get more people in a conversation it will either break up or it has to become a lecture in other words everybody has to cede the floor to one person with a very loud voice you know, you can see that that sort of thing happening. It tends to be 
know, the gathering of juniors around the CEO and the CEO is allowed to pontificate <laughs> and everybody else, uh, you know, sort of hangs on their, their every word. And of course, you know, in every walk of life, it's the same with consultants in hospitals and, and prime ministers, I'm sure, and cabinets and all these kinds of things. So we're, we're quite good at obeying those kind of rules. But what would happen normally in a social uh, context, party or reception, or even just a casual friend sitting around in the room, is that the conversation would be breaking up and reforming all sorts. I mean, just think of a dinner party. You know, if you've got eight people around a table, in principle, that's always going to be two conversations. But of course, you know, people are going to chop and change who they're talking to, and the conversations will sort of uh, divide up and, and, and reform around the table as the course of the evening. But the point about that kind of face-to-face environment, which is not possible to do. So you've got this problem already in the digital environment where the whole thing tends to end up getting dominated by the four people with the loudest voices and everybody else just retires to the outer skirts of uh, the conversation and listens politely and you know gets distracted by the uh, cat chasing uh, butterflies in the garden out of the window and... and um, Know, perhaps checking their uh, news feeds and all these kinds of things that we spend all our life doing, rather than paying attention to the, to the conversation. But in addition to that, there's something else that's, I think, really important, and that is in a normal social environment, we would be able to walk around from one conversation to another, and we'd be able to go and tap somebody on the shoulder and say, listen, just come over here a minute. I, I just want to you know, ask you something or tell you something uh, privately. And we simply cannot do that very easily. I mean, I've seen quite imaginative versions of these kind of Zoom and Skype sort of environments where they've actually managed to reproduce that effect. But at the end of the day, you know, clever as it is, and it does allow you hopefully to have a private conversation in the corner of the, the room without being overheard by anybody. But there's, you know, you're always at risk of the microphone not being turned off syndrome, I suspect. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) More of my discussion with Robin Dunbar after this. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
Now back to my discussion with the author of Friends, Robin Dunbar. So, so um, just coming to the, the end of time, but if you were to give a firm advice then, so we've had this year of separation and we're all sort of planning familial get-togethers, but if you were to say to a firm, they want to get their working relationships back together, would you advise them, look, you know, get everyone in a room or get everyone in a series of rooms or arrange a big dinner, or arrange a big lunch, just Applying the science briefly to sort of organisations, is there anything that we should be saying this is the obvious thing that we need to do? Uh, I'm afraid the, the, the very sort of mundane version of this is simply to suggest they get in um, a very good stand-up comedian uh, for half an hour okay. and, and, and give everybody a free lunch and, and get them to laugh uh, and that they will go away uh, feeling really on top of the world and, and, you know, happier and more engaged with each other as a community because it's laughing together or doing any of these social activities together as a group, uh, even if you don't talk to other people, that creates this sense of bonding and this sense of community. Now, you could do it by getting somebody to stand up and and uh, giving an emotionally charged story, as it were, or perhaps a hellfire and damnation sermon would have the same effect but I'm not sure people would go away feeling as buoyed up and happy as if, if they're exposed to a, a good comedian who actually made them laugh for half an hour. I, I do recommend singing, communal singing, as an activity for these general contexts, but I think probably, and you could do it with that, actually. You could, if you've got somebody, if you've got a Gareth Malone in who could get the entire uh, shop floor doing community singing, uh, you know, with with well-known songs that everybody knows and, and, and doesn't mind joining in. We don't want to try and do Verdi arias or something clever like that. We just want to have jobbing community sing-songs. It will have the same effect. So maybe, yes, that's what I was thinking, that the problem with singing is maybe you need to practice a bit more. But actually, if you've got a very good Gareth Malone type of person who can get a, a group singing, then um, and you've got songs that everybody knows, the sort of good old uh, everyday folk songs, as it were, or popular music, then that's extremely good. I, we always refer to singing as the um, icebreaker effect because it can turn a group of complete, and now as singing together can turn a group of complete strangers into a a set of people who feel that they've known each other for 20 years. And I think you mentioned, actually, that you can get people who are in mini choirs of 20 and then you aggregate them at the end of the day. So you could almost say, using one of your papers, that here's what we're going to do as I get together. We're all going to do one song in our little teams and then at the end of the day, we're all going to come together and do our big song together. It would be a nice replication of the science that you said there. Well, it, it certainly ramps up. It's rather like the rowing effect. Singing in a large choir uh, ramps up the um, endorphin production effect uh, compared to singing in the small sub-choirs. So these small sub-choirs practicing the same material and then meeting up for the final big sing-song. But I think choirs as an activity have been much underused by the business world altogether. And they've appeared in various places and where they have been trialed mostly in hospitals, I think, they've worked very effectively. Um, actually, I know uh, of one case in South Africa where they had everybody involved in a choir uh, from a, a new government department, which gelled it in a way which would never have happened had that not been the case. 
just in the, the post-apartheid uh, era. And so, you know, it, it's an underused resource and it comes for free because, you know, you, all right, you, you need a sort of Gareth Malone lookalike um, leader to lead it. But probably there's already somebody in, in, in the organization that enjoys doing that kind of stuff. And it's just a matter of, you know, sort of everybody, you know, people would do it in their lunch breaks, for heaven's sakes. You know, and you don't have to even waste company time. But the ramifications back on the kind of well-being of your workforce and their feeling of bondedness both to each other and to the company, the organization, you know, it pays huge dividends. And I continue to remain surprised that, you know, organizations don't make more use of this because quite literally they could get, get all this for free. Well, famously, of course, the Japanese sort of did it with their gymnastics for um for the workforce on, on on the factory car park outside. For years, I've maintained that that was the secret of their success in the car industry. <laughs> they just had a workforce that was happy <laughs> to get on with it and do it because <laughs> they'd had this 15 minutes of, of uh, calisthenics and exercise together in synchrony um, every morning. Fantastic. I'm, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to chat to you. And I think we've covered a, a lot of ground along the way there. So Robin, thank you so much. A pleasure. Thank you, Robin. That was incredibly fascinating, compelling, such intriguing uh, research along the way. And look, I just love the, the stories and the origin story. Uh, so thank you. Robin's book, Friends, is out now. Uh, it's about 400 pages, but I, I tore through it. I really, I really enjoyed it. I just love following the, the way that we've discovered these things. And it's, it's such an honour to chat to the man who is at the forefront of, of actually making a lot of these realisations. Uh, thank you for listening. If you are interested in workplace culture and making work better, then the newsletter is a great place to start. You'll find a link in the show notes. I've been Bruce Daisley. Always welcome people getting in touch. Uh, thank you for listening. See you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.